You're listening to Spice Radio, 1200 AM, and we are speaking to Margareta Dovgal, Managing Director at Resource Work Society. This week's topic is gas stoves. Another international leader comes to Canada asking for LNG and more from mining, exploration, and forestry. Margareta, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Fantastic to be here. Good morning. Now, I'm really excited to talk about this story because it's been making the rounds. Lawmakers in the U.S. are considering a ban on gas stoves based on some new research that seems to draw a connection between gas stoves in the home and asthma. Could you unpack that for us? Yeah, this story has been making some headlines, and uh, I'd say it's pretty clear it's part of a coordinated campaign in both the U.S. and Canada to highlight this new research. Um, but there have been some uh, some questions about the design choices in how the data was selected uh, as part of this uh, meta review. Uh, and the researchers essentially were setting out to investigate potential causes of childhood asthma. Um, this study does contradict the findings of previous ones, especially, as I've heard, 27 fairly sizable major studies that uh, actually found uh, no risks to health uh, where ventilation is done correctly. And uh, it is an interesting case study. Politicians the world over consistently teach us every single day uh, to never let good scientific methodology stop them from interpreting the science as they desire. Uh, of course, we heard from um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, she made headlines saying that gas stoves cause brain damage. Absolutely, that's possible, provided you drop a gas stove on your head. And I would not hesitate to call these kinds of declarative statements kind of bunk if they're not well substantiated by good evidence. Um, and it doesn't seem like that's the case. Uh, City of Victoria has uh, done very similar things. They pushed their efforts forward to ban gas stoves with evidence sourced from a test kitchen uh, with poor ventilation encased in plastic sheeting. That's how they measured uh, indoor pollutants. So no surprise that that kind of combination, no ventilation and practically encasing the kitchen in a very small space would yield some pretty eyebrow-raising indoor pollution figures. Uh, But what is key in all these cases is that proper ventilation is necessary, and that's true whether you use gas for cooking or you have, let's say, an open fireplace. That means, in all cases, opting for professional installations, you know, not cooking uh, without a fan in use, things like that. But I think the essential key takeaway here for most people is that there are not you know, these, these, these massive risks, you just need to be responsible with the choices you're making about your fuel sources. Um, that's always been true. And uh, not to let um, fairly unbalanced uh, interpretation guide decisions about public policy as well. Uh, in fact, we should be considering all sources of environmental pollutants. Uh, what we breathe does affect our well-being throughout our lives. But it's also important not to conflate climate considerations with health. And I would say that's definitely what's been happening in this case. Campaigners um, who are pursuing bans for natural gas in homes um, are largely doing so uh, out of climate considerations. They oppose the development and use of these resources, uh, even when alternatives are not especially well-developed or they're costlier or there's access considerations. Um, So often flimsily supported uh, points of quote-unquote evidence are, are utilized. And uh, this is particularly the case when uh, these types of um, advocacy are called evidence-based. I often see an extreme minority of uh, medical professionals being deployed as experts on a file that has nothing to do with health uh, or very little to do with it. And particularly where those experts have very little meaningful things to say, very little situational knowledge uh, beyond, I'm a doctor and I oppose fossil fuels. So 
those are things to, to keep an eye out for. Um, there have been a number of medical professionals uh, with expertise with childhood asthma in particular in British Columbia who have pointed out that the recent study doesn't quite grasp the existing research very well, and it doesn't make a very compelling case. So I think that's really the piece that uh, parents, particularly those of uh, children, should uh, young children in the home should be quite uh, cautious to, to take. Now, speaking of natural gas, Japan's prime minister is in Canada this week, and reports say he's making the case for increased liquefied natural gas export. Why is that? Yeah, well, just like uh, Germany, Japan is very reliant on Russian supply. Indeed, they're the world's second largest of importer of natural gas after China. So many countries, uh, you know, their current supply overwhelmingly comes from Russia. There's been a lot of disruption, a lot of geopolitical challenges, things that we've uh, covered in previous episodes of this show. And uh, the Prime Minister of Japan, Fumio Kishida, is uh, currently here in Canada. Um, you know, there's a sizable amount of speculation about uh, whether uh, part of his mission, which is to talk about uh, natural gas and uh, see if Canada would be willing to divert more uh, over time to Japan, uh, whether it will face the same types of challenges that the German Chancellor Olaf Schultz uh, experienced. Uh, he was essentially rebuffed. The Prime Minister uh, said there was you know, no business case uh, for uh, natural gas exports from Canada to, to Europe. Uh, but I think there's substantial evidence to the contrary. Uh, in fact, the types of uh, market investments that uh, we're currently seeing uh, be realized, uh, particularly on the West Coast, uh, point to our unique competitive advantages. Uh, we have proximity through the Pacific Ocean to major import markets in Asia. Uh, we also are a known producer of sustainable, ethical, responsible natural gas products. Same is true for oil, minerals and metals, and forestry products. So uh, these are certainly pieces that are worth considering. Uh, we're also essentially on the verge of making our first major entry into uh, the global LNG space, uh, our largest ever private sector investment in a major project. The combined uh, LNG Canada and Coastal GasLink project uh, is worth about $40 billion, and it's uh, on the path to finishing construction. So uh, very soon we're going to be seeing... Uh, northern coast of British Columbia become a major hub uh, for this growing global industry. And I hope it actually opens the door even more broadly uh, to other projects. Uh, the Heisler Nation uh, is supporting its own that will take natural gas product uh, from that pipeline. Uh, there's proposals for further projects uh, overall. So I hope to see some positivity, given that this is ultimately a different scenario than the one that uh, Germany faces. There are other competitors uh, that can feed Germany's supply, but I also hope that our decision makers don't rule out the possibility that we could be playing a more involved role in this uh, um, growing, rapidly uh, intensifying market as a whole. And uh, very, very enthusiastic uh, about the possibility that there could be some positive news coming from the Japanese Prime Minister's visit. And if there isn't, maybe that tells us something about uh, challenges we, we have uh, around decision making and uh, our economic balance as a whole. In the mining exploration space, several BC First Nations are challenging the province's free entry system, which enables access to land across the province for potential mining exploration activities. Tell me what this might mean for the sector. 
Yeah, there was a judicial review that was filed by the Gitsala First Nation, and it's actually being combined with a prior filing uh, also for a judicial review by the Hatsasat First Nation. Um, both of them are actually going to be heard jointly at the B.C. Supreme Court in April. And the crux of the issue is the free entry mineral claim system. Um, it's understood as a relatively low barrier system. Uh, it enables us as a leading mining jurisdiction to uh, allow those who have interest in exploring potential claims uh, to, to go and claim them. Um, the key here is if you wish to do more than passive exploration, uh, which is to say anything, let's say, that requires drilling, infrastructure being built, you do need permitting. Um, so it's not a free pass, um, but it does essentially open up uh, the... Uh, the window for uh, prospective developers. Uh, we've also heard from the industry that only one in 10,000 of uh, these claims will ever become mines. Um, but there are, of course, uh, considerations around balancing uh, free prior and informed consent with First Nations. Uh, inclusion of First Nations in decision-making processes about natural resources is an ongoing process across industries. There's a number of ways that that's being handled, both on the mining exploration and the uh, mining development side. Uh, so that's that's a challenge for industry. That's also uh, an important priority for government, as many levels of government pursue critical minerals strategies, uh, which is to take the minerals that are needed for electrification and to bring them to market. And I continue to uh, encourage folks that are interested in this file to uh, look at a variety of sources for information on this. Um, I think it's important for those who are experts in this space um, to evaluate ways that First Nations rights and inclusion can continue to be prioritized. Um, this is a precondition of doing business in these days, um, but I would fall short of saying that um, the mineral claim system as it currently stands needs to be changed. I think that's ultimately uh, a decision for, for government to make. The courts will certainly have their say, um, but let's make sure we're also balancing the need for uh, relatively straightforward production. One of our core challenges continues to be uh, regulations that enable us to build things. Um, so all of that needs to be balanced uh, with rights as well. Lastly, a mill closure in Prince George is costing the community 300 jobs, another blow in a sector that's already struggling with poor fiber supply. What's going on? Yeah, fiber supply has been uh, hit pretty hard in British Columbia in recent months. The allowable cut um, harvest is limited uh, relative to, to the past. There's been a number of uh, changes uh, in the uh, overall regulatory environment around forestry, and uh, some of that has come out of uh, pressure from environmental groups. Um, some of that has come out of conversations with First Nations, um, but there seems to be quite a bit of consensus, um, especially among uh, forestry communities and those involved in the uh, production of forest products, that um, this may be going a bit further than uh, is needed to ensure the sector can continue to provide uh, community family supporting jobs and to provide a steady and stable contribution to BC's uh, trade balance. Um, there is a market conditions piece too, and that's important to note. Um, the recent mill closure by Canfor, uh, you know, they point to this fiber supply challenge. Uh, you know, less logs uh, making their way to mills means less uh, product that the mills can work with. Um, but the overall demand on global markets is a factor as well that they're looking at, and there's some uncertainty about where it's going to go. Uh, so. All of these factors are constantly being evaluated by businesses, and um, the role of government continues to be to balance them and to ensure that we can have local benefits from the resources that we have in abundance.
and that we have the ability to responsibly develop. Margareta, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. You have a good weekend. You too.